Well, I am um, <clears throat> just thrilled uh, to be here and to be talking about uh, today, this morning, and this afternoon, the two most important personal spiritual disciplines. Now, there are personal spiritual disciplines, those that we practice alone, and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, those in which we engage with other believers, usually with the church. And so, um, you, we, we are to pray alone. That's a personal spiritual discipline. We're also to pray with the church. That's an interpersonal or corporate or congregational spiritual discipline. We are to get into the Bible individually. It's a personal spiritual discipline. We're also to hear it read, preached, taught with the church. That's interpersonal. We are to worship God privately. We're also to worship God with the church. Now, some of the spiritual disciplines by nature are personal. Fasting, for example, which I mean, we can do with the church, but typically we think of that as something more individual. Writing in spiritual journal. You keep a journal individually. Solitude, by definition, is something we do alone. Some of the spiritual disciplines are by nature interpersonal. Fellowship, for example. Uh, not, not mere socializing. Socializing is talking about news, weather, sports, work, and family. It's healthy. It's normal. It's good. The godliest Christians ever uh, have done a lot of socializing. But it's not uh, koinonia. You've probably heard that Greek word. It's not fellowship. That's when we talk about God and the things of God. And I contend we do much less of that than we think even at church. Uh, but that's uh, another whole Saturday morning conference, so I won't get into that. But my point right now is that fellowship requires people. The Lord's Supper, Jesus commanded us, do this in remembrance of me. But we're not to serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves in our private devotional life. That's given to the church. We should experience that with the church. So both personal and interpersonal. And we're to practice both because the Bible teaches both. And Jesus practiced both. And he is our, our example of walking with God. Now, he's much more than our example. He's our Lord, our Savior, our King, our substitute, and so forth. But he's not less than our example of walking with God. And Jesus practiced both personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. At least four times the Gospels tell us Jesus got alone to pray. We should too. But Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 4 of his book that as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, wouldn't you think if anyone ever had a pass in going to church, it would be Jesus? I mean, he's got all these people to heal, this messianic ministry to fulfill, this teaching to do, and he knows he has a short time to do it. And yet, he would pull aside from that every Saturday and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. And I think only a preacher can really understand fully what I mean when I say that Jesus must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. Or, boy, he sure butchered that text. Oh, yeah, how do you know? Well, I wrote it. <laughs> but he was there. He was there. And so he engaged in the public, you know, in the annual feasts of Israel and so forth. He would go up to that. So Jesus practiced the interpersonal congregational spiritual disciplines, and therefore so should we. And I, and I mention this because we, we all have a tendency to lean one way or the other. Some of us really profit from our personal spiritual disciplines. Some would say even more than I do at church consistently. And I could be content, I'm sure, to take my personal spiritual disciplines and go off and be an evangelical monk, an evangelical nun, and I don't need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. 
But chances are people who would come out on a Friday night or a Saturday morning to an event like this, there may be a greater propensity <clears throat> to lean the other way and to think, you know, if I'm at the church pretty much every time the doors are open, and I am, and if I profit from that, and I do, I'm sure in the long run that will compensate for the lack of a devotional life. No, it won't. So although some of us are really, uh, we, we love to be alone and thrive in that, others of us are far more gregarious and energized by being around people, <clears throat> we need both the personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines because the Bible teaches both. Jesus practiced both. And I, I spend such time on this because <clears throat> the spirit of the age is spirituality, yes, religion, no. Jesus, yes. Church, no. And the younger you are, the more you're confronted with this, the more you will face this. That, that personal spirituality is all that matters. We, we don't need the church. We don't need any organized religion, so to speak. And so uh, that's increasingly the spirit of the age, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Spirituality, Christ-likeness, is dependent upon what we experience together. <clears throat> We all know that the Bible teaches, you know, you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's true. But seven times it says the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So while it's true, I can point to any individual Christian and say the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's more biblical, <clears throat> at least in terms of numbers, to say it's all the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that in a sense when we come to church, we come to the temple of God. And that God is present in this room in a way that He's not out in the parking lot right now, though He is omnipresent. But if we all got up, went out to the parking lot, we could say He's present there in a way He would no longer be in here. Because there are experiences with God we get only at the temple. And much more I could say about that. And, and indeed, I've written a book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, mostly about personal spiritual disciplines, but another called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. Those things we do together that build up the body together and us individually to be more like Christ is a part of that. So though I'm going to talk about the two most important personal spiritual disciplines today, I don't want to give anyone the impression that uh, th those are more important than those things we experience together at the church. That we can grow Christ-like if we just isolate ourselves and practice the personal spiritual disciplines with diligence. And it doesn't matter how involved we are with the church. That's not what the Bible teaches. So with that background now, we're going to talk this morning and this afternoon, God willing, about the two most important personal spiritual disciplines. And they are the intake of the Word of God and prayer. And in that order, for it's more important for us to hear from God through His Word than for God to hear from us in prayer. So as important as prayer is, it is second in priority to the intake of the Word of God. But with both of these most important personal spiritual disciplines, there is an almost universal problem. And for reasons I'll make more clear uh, this afternoon, we're, we're going to start with prayer this morning. Uh, two sessions with a break in between. The first session will be longer than the second. And by the way, at any time, if you uh, want to get up and walk around or stand, I know for various reasons some of you may struggle with sleep or you just need to get up, whatever, please feel free to do that. Stand in the back, walk around, you won't bother me, it's not Sunday morning service, so uh, this is a lot more informal, so please feel free to do that. With prayer, there is an almost universal problem. 
almost from the get-go, nearly every true Christian struggles in this way with prayer. When we do pray, we tend to say the same old things about what? That's right, the same old things. And when you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times, how do you feel about saying them again? Yes, bored, thank you. People often give these euphemisms and they're afraid to use the B word, but indeed we can be talking to the most fascinating person in the universe about the most important things in our lives and be bored to death. Not because we don't love God and not because we don't love what we pray about. I would contend that if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is not you. Rather, it is your method. But most Christians, in my experience, struggle in the way that I've just described and they conclude it must be me. There's something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. No, I say, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is almost certainly not you. Rather, it is your, your method. Now, I made that very important caveat, saying if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, because the biggest problem in evangelicalism is the church member who's not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the unconverted church member. In my fellowship in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I, I don't think we're any worse at this than any other uh, large group, evangelical group, we have something every August uh, that almost all 45,000 Southern Baptist churches voluntarily fill out called the Annual Church Profile. It is a nine-page, single-space statistical report where we count everything you can imagine and some things you can't imagine. Southern Baptists may not be able to do a lot of things well, but we can count and we can report those numbers. <laughs> and so, I mean, how many bed babies you have in Sunday school? How many toddlers in Sunday school? And all the way up. And how many, how many preschoolers in the children, you know, in the choir? How many children in the children's choir? And all the way through. And how much, how many mission trips did you take last year? Where did you go? And, and all these sorts of things. Nine pages of this. Of this. <clears throat> by our own self-counted, self-reported, church-by-church statistics, two-thirds of Southern Baptist church members will not be in church tomorrow giving biblical reason to at least question their salvation, right? And, you know, you're not, you're not born on a Southern Baptist church roll. You're not put on the roll because your parents are members of a Southern Baptist church. You have to go out of your way, make a public profession of faith, and be baptized to get on a Southern Baptist church roll. Yet two-thirds of the people who will do that will not be in church tomorrow, giving biblical reason to at least question their salvation because the Lord says in 1 John, by this we know we've passed out of darkness into light because we love the brothers. And if they don't love us enough to ever be with us, well, it's at least enough to question that love. Don't you think? You don't think so. Try that on your spouse. <laughs> I love you. I don't care if I ever see you again, but I really love you. Well, I think they'd question that love, don't you? But for the sake of argument this morning, let me presume to be speaking to people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And with a group this large, that's all I always, I realize, a, a great presumption, but let me just do that <clears throat> for the sake of explaining what I'm trying to say. That anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this alien presence from heaven, has been indwelled by someone whose nature is holy. When you walked in those doors this morning, you didn't pause at the door and say, let's see, now which nature will I bring in with me today? Maybe, maybe my armadillo nature, you know. You don't have an armadillo nature because you're not an armadillo, right? You only have a human nature. And you bring your human nature with you wherever you go. 
And in the same way, wherever the Holy Spirit dwells, he brings his holy nature with him. And you have new holy hungers you didn't have before. You hunger for the holy word of God that you used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people. Because the Spirit of God indwells them, and when you talk about the things of God with them, that feeds your soul, and God ministers to you through them in ways He doesn't through other people. And that's why you can't, you can't live apart from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God ministers to you through them, and, and to, be a, to separate yourself from them is in a real sense to separate yourself from God. You cannot bear to be away from what God does for you through them. Which is why when I was pastor, which I pastored about 24 years altogether, longer than I've been a seminary professor. One of the first things I looked for after someone made a profession of faith and was baptized was after, they, after a while when they missed church, did they miss church? You know what I mean? So if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, when you miss church, you miss church because you miss what God does for you through His people that He indwells. When you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have new holy loves you didn't have before. You love the people of God in ways that you weren't there before. You love the Holy Word of God. You, you love fellowship with God's people. And you have new holy longings you didn't have before. You long to live in a holy body without sin anymore. And you long to live with a holy mind no longer affected by temptation at all. And you long to live in a holy and perfect world where there's no more terrorism and there's no more, and there's no more drought and there's no more frustration and there's no more pollution. And it's a holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people at last see face to face and when the angels call holy, holy, holy. And all these things are the heartbeat of all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, whether they're nine or ninety-nine. If they're nine years old, those things will be present, expressed in nine-year-old ways, but they'll be present because He is there. And a person may be ninety-nine years old with the, with the traditions and experiences of the years encrusting their heart, and everything that's pulsing underneath that is the evergreen, ever-fresh work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things... The Holy Spirit does in all those in whom he dwells. Both Romans and Galatians tell us that he causes us. We don't just choose this. He causes us to cry out what? Abba, Father. We have this new fatherward orientation, this heavenward orientation. We didn't have before we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, all those indwelled by the Holy Spirit really want to pray. And yet, while that desire is pressing, as it were, against one side of your soul. Colliding with that is our experience. And our experience is, yes, I want to pray, but when I pray, frankly, it's boring. And when prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying, do you? And if you don't feel like praying, you know what you don't do? You don't pray with any fervency, with any consistency. Oh, you may grind it out from sheer duty or obligation, but it's joyless, it's bloodless, it's heartless. <clears throat> and so people conclude, I guess it's me. I'm a second-rate Christian. I believe in prayer. I want to pray. I'll read a book on prayer, hear a sermon on prayer, go to a conference on prayer, and I'll go back to prayer re-motivated, revitalized. But it's basically still saying the same old things about the same old things, but just with a little more oomph behind it for a while. But pretty soon that evaporates away and 
here you are again, saying the same old things about the same old things, now feeling guiltier than ever because you'd gone back so recommitted, so revitalized. So we tend to conclude, I guess it's me. There's something wrong with me. No, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is almost certainly not you, but rather it's your your method. And the method of almost all Christians from the beginning is to say the same old things about the same old things. Now, the problem is not that we pray about the same old things. To pray about the same old things, in fact, I would contend, is normal. And the reason is our lives tend to consist pretty much of the same old things. If I sent you out right now to pray, and I said, just spread out, go somewhere and pray for about 10 minutes, and I give you no instructions, almost every one of you would pray about the same six things. You'd pray about your family. In some broad general sense or another, maybe you're single, you'd pray to be married, have a family, but it'd be some family-related prayer in one way or the other. You'd pray about your future and some decision that's before you. Should you take that move or not? Should you take that job change or not? Where, where should I go to school? Something about your future. You'd pray about your finances, God's provision for those bills, for that car, for school. You would pray about your work. Students would pray about their schoolwork. That place where you engage your life most of your waking hours during the week. It's normal. You're going to pray about where you're investing your life most of the time. You'd pray about your church or your ministry. Some Christian concern perhaps you have. Someone you're trying to share the gospel with perhaps at, at work or at school or down the street. And then people would pray about the current crisis. Statistically, I'm told each of us has a pretty significant life crisis on the order of every six months or so. And it can be a good thing or a bad thing. It can, be, it can be a birth. It can be a death. It can be a job change you want or one you don't want. But it's on the order of magnitude such that when you go to pray, it's one of the first things that comes into your mind. You need no prayer list to remember to pray for this. It's on the front page of the headlines of your life. Well, if your prayer life is... <clears throat> is dominated by these six things, cheer up, you're normal. Because if you're going to pray about your life, this is your life, right? And if you don't think so, how much of your life is not at all related to your family, your future, your finances, your work or your schoolwork, your church or your ministry, and the current crisis? That's your life, right? And thankfully, these, these things don't change dramatically very often, do they? Well, put all that together. If you're going to pray about your life, and this is your life, and these things don't change dramatically very often, you're going to pray about the same old things most of the time. That's not the problem. The problem is we tend to say the same old things about the same old things. And that's boring. And when prayer is boring, you don't, you don't feel like praying. And if you don't feel like praying, it is hard to make yourself pray, right? You just grind it out from duty or obligation. I mean, you want to pray. The Spirit of God does that. You want to pray. But logically, it would seem you'd want to say to such a person, well, then just stop it. Don't pray anymore. If prayer is so boring, if it's so difficult, and prayers are few and being answered, why do you put yourself through this? Why are you torturing yourself? Just stop it. Don't do this anymore. 
Well, anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit would be horrified at such a suggestion. You cannot imagine a life without prayer. No matter how boring it is, no matter how few prayers are answered, you cannot not pray. Theologians call that the preserving work of the Holy Spirit. Preserving you in faithfulness even when it doesn't seem logical or easy to continue. And so, by the desires given by the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, we continue to pray, but we do it the same old way, saying the same old things about the same old things. So five minutes, seven minutes feels like an eternity when we go to pray. Our minds wander half the time. We'll suddenly come to ourselves and think, now, wait a minute, where was I? I haven't been thinking of God for several minutes now. And we come back to that mental script in our heads and we pick it up again, but almost immediately our mind begins to wander because we've said it so many times, right? And we think, I guess it's just me. Something wrong with me. I wish it weren't that way. And that's the way it is. I guess there's something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. And we become like that little girl who used to go to bed every night saying that same old memorized prayer. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. One night she said, why does God need to hear me say this again? So one night she just recorded that prayer and then she would press the button when she went to bed at night. Now some of you are laughing, but you have prayer recordings in your heads. They're just a little more sophisticated than that. Right? I dare say there are people in this room that when they are called on to pray... You could give their prayer. You've heard it so many times, right? And our hearts don't soar when we hear that kind of praying. We sort of politely endure it. We don't know what else to do. I'm in a different church almost every Sunday. I was out in Midland last week. Uh, I was in Northwest Arkansas before that. I can't remember where I was before that. But I'm, you know, about 100 airplanes a year I've done for about 20 years. And I hear the same prayers all over America. Lead God and direct us. Bless the gift and the giver. Hide the pastor behind the shadow of the cross. I mean, it's like beads on a string. Okay, here comes the red bead, then here comes the blue bead, here comes the green bead. Maybe it's totally different in the hill country of Texas. I don't know. Maybe it's the blue bead, then the red bead. Then the... <laughs> Same prayers, right? One Sunday when I was pastoring up in the suburbs of Chicago, the ushers came forward for the offering, and one of the men began to pray. And as he prayed, I could hear someone talking, and I thought, well, surely this person will be quiet in a moment. As it continued, I realized it was a child. And I thought, surely some adult's going to get this child in line in just a minute here. But it continued. So I'm on the platform, and I opened my eyes and looked, and there on the second pew was the five-year-old son of the usher who was praying. And you know what that little boy was saying? Exactly what his daddy was saying. Not repeating it after him, but in unison with him. You know, like we'll say the Lord's Prayer in unison, only this was Dad's prayer. Now, how could he do that? It's because every time Dad prayed, whether it's over the supper table at home or the Lord's Supper table at the church, it was the same cotton-picking prayer. That's why. This kid has only been in the world 60 months. He's only been up off the floor about three years. And he's already memorized everything his dad prays when he prays. But as I said, you've done the same thing. There are people somewhere in your life, some church you've been a part of, maybe someone in your family, when they're called on to pray, you could give their prayer. You've heard it so many times. 
but we don't know what else to do. And that's the way we learn to pray. We pick phrases we like from people and we sort of string it together our own way and that's our prayer life and it's not satisfying. But we don't know what else to do and so we just assume we are the problem. It must be me. I'm a second-rate Christian. No, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is almost certainly not you, but rather it's your your method. Now, it, it is you if there is some great sin issue in your life you're not even struggling against. You're not confessing. You're not fighting. Then it, it, it very likely is you. But if you're generally trying to follow Christ, if you're confessing the sin you're struggling with, if you're generally wanting, you know, if, if, if you could have your way, God, please change my heart right now so that I never sinned against you again from this moment on in any way whatsoever. If, if that's your heart... Your, your problem in prayer is almost certainly not you. It's your method. And the method of almost every Christian from the very beginning of their Christian life is to say the same old things about the same old thing. Well, what's the solution? Well, whatever it is, I would contend that it must be fundamentally simple. Why? Why? That's right. And who's you? Just you, Bob. Anybody. Anybody? That's right. Anybody where? In the church. In the church where? There. In this church only. Everywhere. Everywhere. Right? All over the world, God has children, doesn't He? And from 9 to 99, with low IQs to high IQs, with very little education and a great deal of education, with very few Christian privileges. I was on a mission trip to the bush country of Kenya several years ago, and not even the pastor had a Bible. And then there are people, God has children with many Christian privileges, like every person in this room. You're in a church where the Bible is preached. If you haven't had to look for a church in a long time, you may not realize how, how rare that is, even in much, much larger cities. And, but if a person lived in a place where they, they couldn't hear the Bible preached in person, uh, they can turn on Christian radio and they can hear a John MacArthur, they can hear an Alistair Begg, someone like that, preach the Bible on Christian radio. But if they didn't live near a Christian radio station, uh, they, if they can get on the Internet, they can hear the best Bible preaching and teaching in the world 24-7, even by guys who are dead. And they can go to Christian bookstores, maybe in their own church. They've got Christian books available to them. And if not, maybe they have Christian bookstores. And, and uh, if, if there's not a Christian bookstore nearby, if they can get online, once again, they can have any Christian book in the world they want tomorrow. They'll pay overnight shipping. And in fact, if they have a Kindle or an iPad, they can have it in 60 seconds. Download it right to their device. And all of those advantages are true for every single person in this room. And so if you, and I mean every Christian in this room, if you can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, then what about our brothers and sisters in the middle of India who have none of those things? What about our brothers and sisters in the Sudan who have no Bible preaching churches, perhaps, who have no Christian bookstores, no Christian radio, no access to Christian content like you do? Now, this is the, the most difficult part of the whole time I'm here. It's right at this point. 
Because there are people in this room perhaps who have been praying in the same frustrating ways I've described maybe as long as I've been alive. And many of you can remember nothing but what I've described. And now I'm here to say that despite the decades of prayer like I've described, I'm saying there's a simple, permanent, biblical solution. And that's hard for some to accept after decades of the opposite. But that's exactly what I'm saying. But I want, I want to build it not only upon Scripture, but upon just the logic of the fact that anything God invites all of His people to do has to be fundamentally simple, right? Do you see that? Because God has all kinds of people. What does Paul say? God has not called many who are wise, many who are mighty, many who are noble. He tends to call ordinary folks. So ordinary folks should be able to have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, right? You see that? Because once again, if you can't, then you're basically saying no Christian in the world can. But none of you would say that. No, no person in this room, I'm sure, would say, well, Whitney, that's pretty tight logic. If I, with all my Christian advantages, if I can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, and I don't, that, that pretty well rules out every other Christian in the world from having a meaningful prayer life. Not one person in this room would say that, I'm sure. You just say, look, I, I don't know about anybody else. I just know about me. I just know that when I pray, frankly, it's boring. So it must be me. I'm a second-rate Christian. In fact, now that you've described it in terms of all the other Christians around the world and all my Christian advantages, I feel even guiltier than ever before. Now, I felt bad enough as it was. Now I feel even worse. Boy, am I glad I came this morning. Thanks a lot for bringing this guy here to our church. I felt like a failure enough in prayer. Now I really feel like one. Boy, am I glad I got up early and gave up my Saturday for this. No, this is good news. This is a help. And here's the solution. When you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture, particularly a psalm. When you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture, particularly a psalm. <clears throat> Now, no one went, oh, and that's good. That's good. If in a church such as this, none of you had ever heard anything like this, I think you'd have reason to be suspicious when I say, here's the simple, permanent, biblical solution to prayer. <laughs> but where you've probably heard something like this most often is when we're going through the letters of Paul, and we see like at the end of Ephesians 1 or at the end of Ephesians 3, these prayers of Paul in his letters, where he says things like, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father and so forth. And we say, you know, we should pray those prayers today. And we should. But I'm going to contend we should pray the whole letter. But that the best place in Scripture to do this, I believe, is the book of Psalms. So with that in mind, now turn to the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm. And I choose this one because I trust that most of you are familiar with this one and I don't have to explain anything really. And what I'm going to do is demonstrate what it would look like to pray through a passage of Scripture like I'm describing. So in real life, let's say you've <clears throat> done your daily Bible reading. You're reading perhaps in Matthew. You're reading through Hebrews. And it comes time to pray. And so you turn over to the book of Psalms in order to pray like you've learned at this conference. And as you 
pray, you choose Psalm 23 and it looks something like this. You read, the Lord is my shepherd and you pray something like, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd and you're a good shepherd and you've shepherded me all of my life. But oh, great shepherd, would you shepherd my family today? Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. And Lord, I, I pray that you would make my children your sheep. Cause them to love you as their shepherd. And Lord, I pray for our under-shepherd at the church. Please shepherd him. He shepherds us. And whatever else comes to mind when you read the Lord is my shepherd, that's what you pray. And then, when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. I shall not want. Lord, I thank you I've never really been in want. I've never missed a meal. All that I have, all that I am is from you, Lord. But I know it does please you that I bring my desires to you. So, Lord, would you provide those finances that we need for those bills, for that car, for school? Or maybe you know someone who is in want and you pray for them. And then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And what comes to mind, frankly, might be something like, Lord, I pray you enable me to lie down and take a nap today. Finally got an amen or two. <laughs> or it may be that what comes to mind is the feeding of God's flock in the green pastures of his word. And so you think of a ministry you have in doing that. Or someone who feeds you in the green pastures of his word. And you pray for them. You pray for a Sunday school teacher or someone like that. When was the last time you did that? Have you ever done that in your life? Then when nothing else comes to mind, you go on. He leads me beside quiet waters. Lord, do lead me in this decision about my future. Do I take that job change or not? Do I take that move or do I not? Lord, lead me. I want to do what you want me to do. I'm just not sure what that is. And lead me beside quiet waters. Quiet the anxious waters in my soul about this decision. Quiet the waters in our home. Quiet the waters. Whatever waters need to be made quiet in your life. Then when nothing else comes to mind, your mind is wandering off, you know, well, now you've got something to come back to. The next line, he restores my soul. Lord, you might pray I come to this conference so spiritually dry. Please restore to me the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you think of that person down the street or at work you're trying to share the gospel with. You pray God would restore their soul from darkness to light, from death to life. And on and on you would go through the passage simply praying about what comes to mind as you go through it line by line. And you do that till either A, you run out of time, or B, you run out of psalm. And you know what you do if you run out of psalm before you run out of time? Now pay attention, this is heavy-duty seminary-level stuff here. You ready? Here's what you do. You got it? Any questions? Repeat that. Okay, here you go. If you run out of psalm, you still got time to pray, you go, and you go to the next one. See how easy that is? So one wonderful thing about this is it expands or contracts to however much or however little time you have. I require my students once during the semester to spend four consecutive hours alone with God. And you ought to see them the first day of class when I mention that. It's like, you know, what am I going to do for four hours? But after I've taught what I'm teaching right now and what I'm teaching this afternoon, which is right out of my class, they will spend the entire four hours, most of them alternating between those two things. 
and almost every one of them goes longer than four hours voluntarily. Not because they have to. They're enjoying it. So you just keep turning the page if you have the time and you never run out of anything to say. But most days, the time available to us for this is closer to four minutes than four hours, right? Well, this still works. You just don't get as far. You just go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. And if you come to a verse and you don't understand it, fine, skip it. Go to the next verse. If you understand the next verse perfectly, but nothing comes to mind to pray about, fine, go on to the next verse. You'll come to those imprecatory psalms. Oh Lord, dash their children's heads against the rock and smash their teeth in their mouth and cause them to dissolve like the snail into the slime. <laughs> well, there may be some Texas politicians who'd like to pray that for a minute. But it's kind of hard to do with a pure motive, you know. No, I don't think we put people's names in there anymore. I think we, we put all the psalms in the mouth of Jesus, ultimately. I mean, Jesus is going to do far worse to his lifelong unrepentant enemies to just smash their teeth in their mouth, right? No, I, I think, uh, and I often put the enemies of my soul in there or, or the enemies of our, uh, the sins of our nation. I pray God will do that with abortion in this country, for example. But in those imprecatory psalms, basically we're just saying, God, I'm on your side. I want all opposition to you to be de destroyed forever. I want your righteousness to be upheld and overcome all. And I'm against all of your enemies. And I want all lifelong opposition to you to finally be destroyed. Well, let's say in real life next Tuesday, you're trying this and you come to one of those imprecatory psalms and you say, now that, that Whitney guy at church told us we could pray through these passages. I forget what he said. Fine, skip the whole section. There's nothing that says you have to pray over every verse. There's nothing that says you have to finish the psalm, for example. I was doing this once in Santa Rosa, California and gave people a chance to try it. One woman prayed 25 minutes and never got past the Lord is my shepherd. Five words, she prayed 25 minutes over those five words. Now, do you really think the Lord was up there going, ah, you didn't finish that song? No, I think he was delighted that she could find so much delight in him as her shepherd, she could talk to him 25 minutes about being her shepherd, don't you? But the very next day, she might have been in some psalm like Psalm 22 with 31 verses. And only three or four things come to mind in that long psalm. That's fine. You really can't mess it up. You go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind, even if, now listen carefully because this is the most potentially misunderstandable thing I will say. When I say you go through it line by line, talking about whatever comes to mind, even if what comes to mind has nothing to do with the text. Now let me defend that from the text. What does the text of Scripture tell us to pray about? Everything, right? So everything that comes to mind as we're praying is something worth praying about, isn't it? So... As you're going through the text, whatever comes to mind, turn it Godward. 
So even if what comes to mind has nothing to do with the text, whatever comes to mind is something you should pray about. Let, let me use a ridiculous illustration here. Suppose you're going through the text and what comes to mind is sinful thoughts. What should you do with those sinful thoughts? Confess them. Pray about them, right? Turn them Godward. Obviously, that's not what the text is about. Let me use another illustration. Psalm 130. Suppose you're praying through Psalm 130 and you come to that verse that says, Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And your friend, Mark, comes to mind. What should you do? Pray for Mark. Now, you know that verse is not about Mark. It was written 4,000 years before Mark was born. Besides, that's a verb and your friend Mark is a noun. Pray for Mark. You really can't mess it up. And that's meant to be a pastoral encouragement that anybody can do this. A six-year-old who, who can read can do this. Someone converted yesterday can do this. The most mature Christian can do this. The one who knows the least about the Bible, opened it for the first time today, can do this. The one who knows the most about the Bible can do this. Anyone can do this, and you really can't mess it up because whatever comes to mind is something you ought to pray about anyway. Now, let me make a distinction between studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible and what I'm talking about. When we're studying the Bible to understand what does it say, what does it mean, what is, what it's, what, our job is digging the meaning out of the text there. You have other tools perhaps, other books, other helps. You're looking up cross-references. And, and only secondarily perhaps you're praying. Every once in a while, Lord, what does this mean? Lord, help me, help me understand this. But your primary activity is study, interpretation. You can get that wrong. You can certainly get that wrong. And one of the most important classes we have at the seminary is called hermeneutics, and it's about interpreting the Scripture correctly. And I'm intentionally giving some illustrations here. If I were to preach tomorrow on the 23rd Psalm, and I were to go through that passage and say, and when it says, He restores my soul, I said, folks, that verse is about evangelism. That's about God restoring the souls of lost people from darkness to light, from death to life. It would be sin if I said that. Because that is not what that verse means, and I know it. So you can interpret the Bible incorrectly, but that's not what we're doing. With what I'm advocating, our primary activity is what? We're praying. And we're praying while secondarily we're reading the Bible. And I'm saying that whatever comes to mind as you're reading the Bible, just turn it Godward. So that we're taking the words that have already originated in the heart and mind of God and, and, and circulating them through our hearts and minds back to God so that His words become the wings of our prayers. And anybody can do that. And you really can't mess it up. And that's meant to be an encouragement for those people who are afraid of getting into the Bible for fear that they, can't, they will mess it up. They will do something wrong. They'll misinterpret it. Now, you, most of you have been in a jet airplane like it was on yesterday, and you know the, the, the great amount of effort and thrust it takes to get that plane off the ground. As we were getting into Texas, they talk about the storm coming here. They're going to have to reroute us. So they just turned the nose of the plane a little bit more toward the south, and they took us over Laredo and came around that way. That didn't take a lot of effort. They just went <laughs> doing this. It takes a lot more effort to get that plane in the air than it does to make a mid-course correction. It takes a lot more effort 
Well, let me put it this way. I, I've never had anyone who got into the scripture the way I'm describing and got into some weird doctrine and was propagating that throughout the church. But if, if that did happen, it's a lot easier to correct that than it is to get that person in the air and praying. I want people in the air. I want people praying. I want them in the Word of God, praying the Word of God, and if they misinterpret something, and if it begins to cause a problem, then the role of leadership is to gently correct that. So that's why I'm just encouraging people, look, you can do this. You can't mess it up. Have at it. And I've never had it happen before, but if someone does mess up in a way that is causing problems, we can fix that. That's just a mid-course correction. That's easy to fix. That's a lot easier to do that than to get them up there and get them praying. There is a, a precious doctrine of Scripture. I don't think I ever heard about it until after I was in seminary. And uh, let me talk about what a comfort it is at this point. And that is, uh, do we have, oh, here's another marker. Uh, not a lot better, but the perspicuity of Scripture. Oh, down there. Great. Thank you. I'll write it again. For those of you in the back, maybe you can't see that. The perspicuity of Scripture. In in the latter part of this, you can hear the, the that part of the word the suffix there, the acuity part. You, we talk about visual acuity, how sharply, how clearly you can see. We talk about something is conspicuous or inconspicuous, how easy it is to see it. The, perspic the perspicuity of Scripture basically says that the essentials of the Bible are easy to see. That everything you need to know to know God is plain. If you can read the Bible, everything you need to know, you have to know to know God is evident. And you don't need anybody to interpret it for you. You don't need any, any intermediary between you and God to tell you what the essentials of the Bible mean. In terms of essentials, meaning how to know God. So, for example, if you can read the Bible, you can read and clearly see that the Bible says God created everything, including you. And therefore, He has all rights over you, including the right to tell you how to live. And He's done that in His law. But you broke it willingly an infinite number of times. And that has placed you under the condemnation of the just and holy God who created you. And there is a judgment. There is a heaven and hell. And you will stand condemned before Him. Indeed, you do right now because you've willingly broken His law an infinite number of times. But this God is also infinitely merciful. And He sent His Son Jesus to live the life you should have lived, but you couldn't live. And He perfectly kept the law of God. He always did what the law says to do. He never broke what the law says do not do. And Jesus earned heaven. His life was the only one good enough to earn entrance into heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for all those who, who 
violated the law of God and who could not earn heaven. And as a substitute, he offered himself on the cross and received the penalty for lawbreakers. And we know God accepted that because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven from which he rules over all and someday he will return as king and judge. And what you need to do in response to that is to repent, to turn from living for yourself and to believe in Christ as your only hope of being made right with God. If you can read the Bible, everything I just said is plain. Now, not everything in the Bible is essential. For example... You don't have to know the order of events leading up to the return of Jesus. What you really need to know is that he is going to return. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when it's going to be, but we need to get ready and get as many people ready as we can. That, those are the essentials. The order of the events leading up to that, you don't have to know that to know God. You don't have to know that. And so the perspicuity of Scripture is a great comfort in what I'm talking about in praying through Scripture. That if people would pray through Scripture, they're not going to mess up the big things. And if someone prays through Scripture and they read, The Lord is my shepherd, and they say, Lord, shepherd me in this and shepherd me in that, guess what? They got it. <laughs> they got it. And I, I have enough confidence in the Word and the Spirit of God that if people would pray through Scripture like this, their prayers would be far more biblical than they ever would be just making up their own prayers. Right? And that's what people do. People make up their own prayers. How do they do it? They pick phrases that they like and they string them together and that's their prayer. They make up their own prayers. People who pray through Scripture, those prayers would be far more biblical than they ever would be making up their own prayers. So with whatever inconsistencies with the Bible people may experience by praying through Scripture, it's going to be infinitely better than making up their own prayers. And it's so easy. Anybody can do this. And is there any better way for a person? All they have is their, their Bible and, and the Holy Spirit. Is there any better way for them to understand the true meaning of text than to pray over it? If they don't have any other resources, any other helps, just the Bible. Is there any better way for them to understand what it means than to pray over it as I've described? But I have enough confidence in the Word and in the Spirit that if people would pray what comes to their mind as they go through Scripture, those prayers are going to be far more biblical than they ever would be otherwise, and they're going to be taught through the Scripture. The prayers are going to be shaped by Scripture. And I think the best place in the Bible to do this is in the book of Psalms. Now I'm going to show you something here that's not original with me, and here's the reason why we're going to do this. It involves a little bit of, of math here. Uh, for example, we have how many psalms? 150 psalms, 30 days in the month. That's five psalms per day, right? I'm going to recommend you take no more than 30 seconds and scan five psalms and pick one as the one to pray through. Why? Why make you do this? Why go through this? What I'm showing will help you avoid this. Oh, boy, I was sleepy this morning, but uh, I'm going to try to pray... Pray through a psalm like he told us. Okay, here we go. All right. Let's see. All right, here, here we go. No, I don't like that one. 
All right, here we go. No, use that one the other day. You're already going downhill. You're already losing momentum, right? That's the last thing we need. We need all the help we can get, right? We come to our devotional line. That's what this does. This gives you a place to go. And here's how it works. And now I know some people who read five psalms every day. That's a great practice. Um, but what I'm suggesting is you take no more than 30 seconds and scan five psalms and pick one. Pick one as the one you pray through for that day. So here's how it works. You start with the day of the month. Now I know today is not the 15th, but I can't change this slide every time I do this. Okay, So for the moment, pretend that today is the 15th. On the 15th of the month, guess what your first psalm is? Psalm 15, very good. All right, there's my first psalm. Step two, add 30. Well, where does 30 come from? 30 days in the month. So that gives me 45. There is my second psalm. And how many am I looking for? Looking for five, so just keep it up. 30 more is 75. 30 more is 105. And 30 more is 135. So those five numbers in gold are your five psalms of the day, whenever the day is, the 15th. Whether it's the 15th of May, the 15th of June, the 15th of July, the 15th of August, if it's the 15th of the month, those are always your five psalms of the day. All right? Start the day of the month. That's the hardest part of this. You don't care what day is. Once you get that down, you're on your way. Then you just keep adding 30. So whatever the day of the month is, that's your first psalm. Now some people say, well look, wouldn't it be easier just on the first of the month do the first five? On the second of the month do the next five. On the third of the month do 11 through 15. Okay, great. On the 27th, what are they? Uh, that's way much harder for me. Right? Just take the day of the month, keep adding 30. What do we do on the 31st? Yeah, 119. I usually get some smart aleck answers, but on the 31st, you Psalm 119. Now, that's going to come up on the 29th because what are the Psalms of the day on the 29th? 29, because that's the day of the month. Add 30, gives me 59. 30 more is 89. 30 more is 119. And 30 more is 149. So 119 is going to come up on the 29th. But even if you use Psalm 119 on the 29th, You'll probably have plenty left over uh, for the 31st. Okay, pop quiz class. What are the Psalms of the day today? Why 10? Today's the 10th. Perfect. What's the next one? Why 40? You had 30. What's next? 70. What's next? 100. Okay, okay. Some of you hesitated there. When you go up to three digits, it's a little harder. But it's good for your math. Right? In addition to your prayer life, it's good for your math. All right, and 130. All right, so those are always the five psalms of the day on the 10th. Day of the month is 10, so 10, 40, 70, 100, 130. And so what I'm advocating is you take 30 seconds and you pick one of those five as the one you pray through. And it's uncanny how one of those five will just jump off the page. One of those five will put into expression what's looking for expression in your heart. But the benefit is it gives you a place to go. You're not just thumbing through your Bible. And over time, that will systematically expose you to all 150 Psalms. They're all equally inspired. 
they're not all equally easy to pray through. The imprecatory psalms are not as easy to pray through as Psalm 23, for example. But don't worry about which one you did last month. Okay, now today is the 10th. Which one did I do on the 10th of last month? Well, don't even think about that. You might use Psalm 10 three months in a row on the 10th. That's fine. Just over the years, this will systematically expose you to all 150 psalms. But the great benefit is it gives you a place to go. And I believe the psalms are the best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture. That no other book of the Bible is as well suited to what I'm talking about as is the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms was what was the original purpose. Songs, right? Songs of praise. In fact, the, the book of Psalms in Hebrew means the book of praises. It was the song book of Israel. And we were given the Psalms by God, right? Well, duh, we know that. It's the Psalms from God. But unlike any other book of the Bible, the Psalms were inspired for what purpose? To be sung to God. Right? Now, guys, this is the technological highlight of the whole weekend. I can tell you're all mystified by this and overwhelmed, so I'm going to run it by you again because it's so <laughs> dazzling um, in terms of special effects. All right? We get the Psalms from where? Well, duh, we get the Psalms from God. The three-year-old class could answer that, right? But what they couldn't answer is, why did God give the Psalms? God gave us the Psalms to give the Psalms back to God. No, the book of the Bible was inspired for that purpose. It's as though God said, I, I want you to praise me. Not because I'm an egomaniac, but because I love you. I want you to praise me because you will praise that which you love and prize the most. And I want to be the one you love and prize the most because if you love and prize anything else more than me, ultimately that leads to your unhappiness and your destruction. And so I want you to praise me. And that's good for you to praise me. But you don't know how to praise me. I am invisible to you. You know nothing about me unless I reveal it to you. So I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. So here, sing this. Ever thought about the Psalms in that way? God gave us the Psalms, so we'd give the Psalms back to God. No other book of the Bible was inspired for that purpose. In fact, you see anything in the, in the Bible that says we should stop singing Psalms today? No, we have not only one, we have two commands in the New Testament. To sing three things. What are they? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I've never been in a group that didn't know that, that triad. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And it's not obscure verses. Two of the most important verses in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. Comma. Not period. Comma. Speaking in one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And a parallel verse. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Comma. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord. We're, we're commanded to sing psalms. Do you? I was in the middle of one of my own lectures one time as a seminary professor in a, in a class on worship. And was talking about this. And right in the middle of my own lecture, I became convicted that though I'd known that phrase all my life, like a good Baptist boy, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, 
I had never done it. Not intentionally. Worse, as a pastor, I had never led our church in the singing of psalms. Not once. Not intentionally, not consciously. Though I'd known all my life, we're commanded to sing psalms, some spiritual songs. In fact, did you know that uh, before around uh, 1700, all denominations sang psalms and many sang nothing but psalms? It, it's a view, in fact, some groups, I think incorrectly, but some groups still hold this view. And it's a, it's a view that's called exclusive psalmody. Exclusive psalmody are the view that the Bible teaches. That's important. That the Bible teaches we're to sing psalms exclusively in the worship of God. Or put it another way, we should exclude every song in worship except those inspired by God. And of course found in the Bible, particularly in the book of Psalms. And in fact, uh, uh, that was the view of the Presbyterians. That was the view of all who call themselves Reformed. That was the view of the Congregationalists. That was the view of all Baptists, Calvinistic or Arminian. They believed the Bible taught that. And when it says to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, they understood that to refer to all of the psalms. If you'll go into like Psalm 41, 42 in the 40s there, you'll see at the top it says a psalm of David, Right? That's verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible, by the way. That's not added like, you know, giving a little title to the psalm like many of our Bibles do, but it's in italics because that's not original. A psalm of David, that's verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. If you look a little farther in the 40s there, it'll say a song of David, right? And so when some of our, our forebears would read in the New Testament were to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, they understood that to mean we're not just to sing the psalms that are called psalms, we're also to sing the psalms that are called songs. We're to sing all the psalms. And they understood since the Bible commanded us to sing that and did not permit or did not mention anything else that we should sing nothing but psalms. And if you sang anything but a psalm in worship, it was sin. Now, it wouldn't be written for another hundred years, but to, to have sung Amazing Grace, for example, in worship would be sin. Sing it on a Saturday morning event like this. Sing it in your home. Sing it in a fellowship time. That's fine. But if it's worship, if it's a formal worship service, to sing anything but a psalm is sin. And like I said, there's still some small groups today that hold to that view. But there was a Baptist in London named Benjamin Keach and an Anglican named Isaac Watts who around 1700 began to teach that God permits human compositions in the worship of God. And being good Baptists, it took them 12 years of Keech's teaching before they accepted that. In fact, there's an interesting compromise. They would have the Lord's Supper every Sunday at the very end of the service. And then, as it says in the Gospels, they sang a hymn and went out, which is interesting because we know that what they sang were, were psalms. Nevertheless, it, they would bring a human composition to sing at the end after the Lord's Supper. If you were offended by that, after the Lord's Supper, you could leave. And those who remained would sing a human composition, and they got to do that. And then... Service was over. For 12 years, that's the way it was. But then the pendulum swung, and they accepted the singing of human compositions in the worship of God. And boy, did the pendulum swing. Because many of us grew up singing nothing but human compositions, as far as we know. But then, as I'm sure you do, and your experience would prove, you've been in churches uh, where we sing, As the deer panteth for the water. Psalm 42, right? And... Um, it used to be we'd say, um, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Psalm 103 today is going to be, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Psalm 103, which we call, but we don't call it Psalm 103. We call it 10,000 reasons, right? And we don't call it Psalm 42. We say, as the deer. Anybody ever sung this psalm before? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Whew, God, we sing songs. Oh, my relief. But you know why we sing psalms in the church I was leading, why we would sing psalms? Not because there were psalms. We didn't know there were psalms, mostly. We sang them because we like them. We don't even know. I mean, the words could be out of mind comp for all we know, but, you know, we just like that song. All right. Hey, it's deer season. Let's sing a song about, about the deer, you know, as a deer. But if it's, uh, you know, let's tell people, hey, this is Psalm 42. The Bible, you know, it's very satisfying to say the Bible commands us to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Let's sing, let's obey God now by singing Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water. That's, that's something satisfying about that, right? The sense that we're actually obeying God by singing this song. And doesn't it make sense there are no words in all the world that would nourish our hearts in the worship of God like the only words in all the world God inspired for us to sing in worship? I do believe the Bible permits human compositions. But let's don't exclude the only words in all the world God inspired for us to sing. And let, let's make it evident that we're doing it. We, we are singing words that God inspired and that will nourish our souls. But let's say that, um, well, uh, let me just move on very quickly. I'm about to take a break here. That I believe there's no other book of the Bible more or better suited to sing to praying than the Psalms because the Psalms are the only book of the Bible inspired by God to be reflected to God. Martin Luther said the, the Psalms are like a little Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible is in the Psalms, either in the bud or in the flower, but they're all there. And someone else said there's a Psalm for every sigh of the soul. That you'll never go through anything in your life that at its root is not reflected in the Psalms whether you're exhilarated with God or you're angry at God, whether you're satisfied with God, contented with God, or you're disappointed with God, whether you are, you are grateful or whether you're angry at enemies or everything in between, there is nothing in your life. With 150 Psalms, you have the entire range of human experience there. And so you'll never go through anything in life that at its root is not reflected in one of the Psalms. And that's why. If you'll quickly scan five Psalms, it is uncanny how one of them will put into expression what's looking for expression in your heart. But let me quickly show you a couple other places. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. I think the second best place in Scripture from which to pray scripture, scripture in New Testament letters. And that's because you've got so much crammed into almost every verse in a New Testament letter that almost every verse will suggest something to pray about. Now, I chose Psalm 23 a few minutes ago because I was confident you're all familiar with Psalm 23. But I'm choosing 1 Thessalonians 2 this time because I'm pretty confident most of you aren't familiar with 1 Thessalonians 2, at least not as familiar as you are with the 23rd Psalm. And I'm choosing this because this is more like real life. In real life, if you were going to pray through a passage, most days it wouldn't be as familiar as Psalm 23. So I want to see what would it look like. 
If I, if I said, hey, let's, we're going to look at a New Testament letter, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, eh, you know what's there. If I said, let's go to Romans 8, eh, you know what's there. Those are softballs. That's batting practice. What about real life? What about real life when you, you wouldn't know the chapter so well? What would it look like to pray through a relatively unfamiliar chapter? But it does raise the question, if the Psalms are the best place to do this, what do you think in real life would lead a person to find themselves praying through 1 Thessalonians 2? Don't make this too hard. In real life, what do you think would cause a person to find themselves wanting to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2? What's that? Exactly. That's what they're doing their daily Bible reading in 1 Thessalonians. Today they read chapter 2. And they said, you know what? I only have a few minutes here. I, I want to stay in this passage. I don't want to go over to the Psalms. Time is short. I want to go back and pray through what I just read through. This was really meaningful to me. I want to spend what little time I have left camped out here. So if I were to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2 today, it would look something like this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Lord, I pray that my coming to Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship would not be in vain. I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time. I pray no one would walk out of these doors saying, well, that was in vain. That was a waste of time. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, stop. What two words stand out? <laughs> suffered and mistreated. Maybe that's you. You're suffering in some way. You're being mistreated in some way. Or you know someone who is. Maybe you're, you're prompted to pray for our persecuted brothers around the world. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Oh, God, give me the boldness to speak the gospel to that person down the street or at work despite the opposition in their heart. I pray for Christians or missionaries in these places where they're opposed by the government or false religions. Give them boldness to speak the gospel there. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And someone you're you know, who's coming under error comes to mind and you pray for them. But they're erroneous thinking or impurity, your own temptations to that or that of your children or your spouse or by way of deceit. You know someone who's being deceived. You know perhaps some young woman who's being deceived by a young man and you, you pray about that. You pray for that person. Well, if you were to pray your way through First Thessalonians 2 like that, how long do you think it would take? It'd take a while, right? But, let's circle back to where we started now. It would be unlike any prayer you ever prayed in your life. You pray through Scripture, you never again say the same old things about the same old things. Never. You're freed from that. You never again say the same old things about the same old things. And all you do, you don't need notes. You don't need any other book. You just need your Bible. And you go through it verse by verse, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. It will be unlike any prayer you ever prayed in your life. And you won't run out of anything to say. See how simple that is? Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that, regardless of age, spiritual maturity, familiarity with the Bible. Anybody can do that. You go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. And you never again say the same old things about the same old things. 
So the New Testament letters are the second best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture because almost every verse has something crammed there that, that just suggests something to pray about. We saw even between the commas, right, in verse 2, something to pray about. Almost every verse in a New Testament letter will suggest something to pray about. And then finally, before I break here, the narrative passages. Go to John chapter 8. What's in the narrative passage of Scripture? Story. This is the biggest chunk of our Bibles, right? All the Gospels, the book of Acts, all those Old Testament stories. If we're going to learn to pray through Scripture, we have to know how to pray through a narrative passage because that's the biggest chunk of the Bible. But folks, there's one big difference between what we've seen thus far and what we see here. Thus far, we've looked at the text microscopically. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words, 25 minutes. We saw a moment ago, even between the commas, we saw their matter for prayer. But now with a narrative passage, you back up and get the big picture. The big, big ideas. Because if you try to pray microscopically over a narrative passage, well, it could look something like this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Well, if you had to come up with something, it might be about mountains or olives or I don't know what, but it wouldn't be easy, right? No, what you're going to do is probably back up and read all 11 verses in this story. Because in a story, in a narrative in the Bible, usually you have these stage-setting verses after which comes the punchline. It may only be the punchline you'll pray about in a narrative passage. Not all the stage-setting verses that lead up to it. Just the big, broad brushstrokes and ideas. Now, I mean, any thought that comes to mind, you, you, do, you pray about that. But it's a different genre of Scripture. It's a different way of putting thoughts together than we have in the Psalms, which are just so heart-to-heart -heart directed to God. Then the, the New Testament letter is so just didactic, teaching one thing after another. This is a story. It's just like before, you go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. It's so easy. Now, when we come back, we're going to have the most important part of the whole day. 